And we are going to be, I'll tell you right up front tonight, so give your fingers some limbering up, as it were, because we're going to look at quite a number of scriptures. Uh, One of the main texts I'd like you to look at, we're going to start with the end of Revelation 13 into the beginning of Revelation 14. I want to put the two things side by side. There are some things I'm sure you know, at least uh, on a sensational level, because the mark of the beast is probably one of the most sensationalized aspects of Revelation. And you might know some of those things, but there's a lot more to it and things that go with it that you might imagine. And I hope that we can open up some new ideas tonight in the sense that a new understanding or a broader understanding of all that's taking place. And so let me just read the text. And uh, let me just start with uh, Revelation thirteen sixteen. Also, it, meaning the image of the beast... It also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked, keyword, karagma and the original, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. So there's an example of one of our questions. So that, here's the purpose of what the mark is for. So that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. All right. So we're going to find out, one of the things we're going to learn tonight is that the mark of the beast and the name, the mark and the name go together. And there's a reason for that. And we're going to look at that in somewhat detail eventually tonight along the way. This calls for wisdom, verse 18. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. Gematria is an um, alphanumeric code for a name, place, or person. Um, that's a Jewish not just Jewish, but they have that in Jewish uh, literature. And the number of the Antichrist and his name uh, equals 666. Now, what you don't think of often when you think of the mark of the beast, turn to the next chapter, and that's why sometimes the chapter and verse divisions aren't the greatest thing in the world. They do help in a lot of ways, but sometimes they confuse us or separate things they shouldn't. 14.1 says... Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000... Now watch. The name and the mark go together. Who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now we just heard that, and that's the one that gets all the publicity, and it's on the marquee of all the sensationalistic uh, rapture, tribulation stuff. But the reality of it is there's more than one mark. There's the mark of the beast. And in this passage, there's the mark of the lamb. Both are in the forehead, and both have a name attributed to it. And there's two of them, two marks, for a reason. And that's where we're going to head tonight in our study. So let me tell you a little context, uh, really wide in the Bible, and we'll narrow it down to Revelation, to put what the mark is about so you can get the seriousness of the mark in Revelation and what it might mean in application for us tonight. So this is not, it is a sermon, But it's kind of a Bible study um, more tonight because of the topical nature of it. But let me start off with introducing you to the subject that really is behind uh, these two marks. I'll start by saying this. Crisis moments in the Bible happen throughout Scripture in the Old Testament and even up into the New Testament where people have, are confronted with a difficult situation and they have to make a choice. And that choice is usually between God and another God. And uh, there are numerous instances, and I'm going to list a few tonight. I, if you were here, I'd have you raise your hand, and you could tell me what you thought. 
But since you're not, I'm going to give you some, and this is certainly not an exhaustive list by, list by any stretch. But Adam and Eve, I mean, very first people on our planet um, were confronted with the snake, and they had to choose God's way or to basically worship Satan and do his word instead. And again, a worship issue was, and that, that tension of choosing God or going with the devil uh, was paramount in that crisis moment. You have Moses, and he is on Mount Sinai, get the Ten Commandments, and they have to decide whether they do God's words. And eventually, even as Moses is up there getting them, there they are worshiping the golden calf and the idolatry that goes with it. It was a crisis moment at the beginning of Israel's national history. And unfortunately, they chose wrongly and had to be punished for it. You come to the end of the conquest. Joshua says his famous words in his book, chapter 24, Choose you this day whom you will serve. And so he stands up there like Moses did between the Mount of Blessing and Cursing. And he says, you choose either the gods that were on the other side of the river, the gods that your forefathers served, or choose God, our God. And so again, they're confronted with a choice. And the choice is a worship choice. Um, We move on to Elijah. He's standing on Mount Carmel all by himself. 850 prophets of Baal. And he draws everyone from Israel in that area to the mountain on that day. And he says, you have to, you can't keep limping between two opinions. He says, either choose Baal and worship him, or you choose, it's a crisis moment. And you'll find that most of the major crisis moments in scripture, uh, individually or for the nation of Israel, were worship moments. And that's why he builds an altar. Who are you really, that's the question. Who are you really going to worship? Daniel and his three friends in Babylon are confronted with that very issue. Um, will you bow down to the idol or will you be thrown in the fiery furnace? You have to make that choice. In the cr- Daniel, will you pray to Darius and making, making him a god? Or will you suffer the lion's den and hold on to your faith in the one true God? All throughout the Old Testament and many more, the crisis moments are about people who had to make the choice between which God they will serve. And it climaxes in Jesus. Will you believe he is God and who he said he was? Will you worship him and all throughout the New Testament? Or will you worship the Roman pantheon and the false gods of Roman world and culture? And you get to the book of the Revelation, and basically this question that's been asked from the beginning of the Bible and now to the end of the Bible comes to a climax. And really, there's lots of ways to look at the Revelation, but this is one of them. And one of them is asking and answering this question, who will you worship? And by that, I mean that, and so do the authors, uh, so does John, the revelator. He does not mean who will you worship formally. He's not talking about what God that you propose to be true um, at worship service when you come on Sundays. He's not asking formally, he's asking functionally. Day in and day out, when it comes to making choices, and especially, I would say, contextually in crisis moments and tribulation times when everything's at stake, which God do you really worship? And so the crisis moments throughout the book of Revelation are real, and they can be real in our life too. Your private worship and devotion becomes public in the book of Revelation. And the choice that you make, whether you will follow the beast or whether you will follow the lamb, has incredible, eternal implications. And the choice you make is both decisive, and you'll find in the book, divisive. They're both. In other words, you can't remain neutral. You can't stay in the middle. In Revelation, it is painfully clear that you either follow the beast or the lamb, and there are no other options. And those choices have eternal consequences. 
In fact, it says in the text that we read that if you choose the mark of the beast, you'll be able to buy and sell and at least in some level survive and eat and have some of the basics of life. But if you choose not to do that, you could be killed. In fact, many are, and you don't have enough to eat, and you know how you're going to survive and make it. So there are physical ramifications, and you'll find out later that there are far more than that. The spiritual ramifications are even greater. So let me ask you that question that's asked all of the saints and people of the tribulation period. Who do you worship? You'll find that in the book of Revelation, that question begins to bleed over into other questions. It begins to determine the outcome of other questions. Who will you worship starts framing and determining, will you have something to eat? Will you be able to go on surviving or even living? So who you worship becomes the ultimate question in the book of Revelation because all the other questions underneath it are answered by that one and determined by that one. And so it is, truthfully, even in 21st century America. The question, who will you worship, starts determining a lot of other choices in our life. Will you be popular and accepted? Well, if you worship God, the answer to that may be no. And that's why some people, young people, old people, they say no to worshiping God. Why? Because they want to answer the other question differently. Will you be promoted? See, who you worship might determine will you be promoted. Who you worship might determine will you be successful. It might determine will you be moral. Because if you choose to worship the beast, you will answer all the subsequent questions differently perhaps than that. So we might go so far as to say tonight, crisis moments reveal who you really worship. It's interesting. If you look up in a concordance or on the internet, the word worship is used about 20 times in the book of Revelation. And interesting, it's almost an equal divide. Ten of those times worship is used, it talks about worshiping God or the Lamb. But the other approximately half of the times are talking about worshiping the dragon or the beast himself. So, so it's not an easy choice. In fact, I would say to you that a lot of people that you think would make the choice obviously will not. Those types of people will not make the choice that you think they will in the tribulation period. Tribulation brings the worship war to a climax. Because hear me, who you worship, the answer to that question determines everything. So there are only two groups, and the Bible loves antithetical mindset. It's a Hebrew way of thinking. There are two groups in Revelation, those who worship the beast and therefore have his mark. And then the other group is completely antithetical and opposite of that, those who worship the lamb and have his mark, or the more common word used when the lamb uses it, his seal upon them. So don't get... Don't get lost here. I I want you to think a little deeper tonight. When we talk about which one that you will serve, this is not in Revelation, hear me, and it's not in our lives either. It is not just a matter of taking sides. This is not a choice to say, well, I'm on the lamb side and I'm on the beast side. So it is taking sides. It is that. That is an issue. But it is more than that. You read Revelation carefully. It is not just a matter of taking sides. It's a matter about taking sides. A system. Because that's why the lamb and the beast, the beast is ferocious and violent and a certain kind of animal. Because that's his approach to life. And the lamb is completely opposite of that. 
A lamb is gentle and meek and completely different. So when you take sides, it's because you have already chosen a system in which you will live. Case in point, the beast is a power over system. The lamb is a power under system. It is a completely different approach to life and everything in it. One, the beast system is a love of power. The lamb system is a power of love system. See, the beast system is a system about this world and everything in it. And that's the primary focus. But the lambs is about the world to come, the next world, and everything. One is earthly oriented. One is heavenly oriented. So the mark of the beast or the lamb, I call it the dividing mark. And I call it that because once you choose the side, because you've already chose the system, it really motivates everything in your life. I've read numerous books, many, many articles, sermons, and the popular question when the mark of the beast is covered is, I'm not going to cover. The popular question is, what kind of mark will people receive? And everybody wants to know, is it a microchip under your skin? Will it be infrared on your forehead so that when you pass under some monitor, it'll show it, otherwise you can't see it normally? What will it be? Now, everyone's interested in where it will be. Will it be 666 on someone's head? It will be a name written here on your right hand. How will it look? What will people give? So am I afraid? And, and, and that's where everybody's caught up in. And I'll tell you, that is part in the, it's all obviously in there. And that, it's good information to know. It's hard, we can't speculate because the Bible doesn't say. So that's almost an unanswerable question, but the one we can answer is the inflection of that. Not what kind of mark people will receive, but let me tell you this, what kind of people will receive the mark? That, in my estimation as I read the book, is the far greater question for us to consider. And with the remaining time we have left tonight, that's what I intend on doing. So we're going to break it up this way, because it's a Bible study tonight. We're going to do two things and unpack them one at a time. Number one... We're going to discuss tonight what kind of people are being marked each way. And I'm going to tell you, let's look at what it means to be marked. Okay? We're going to look at outside of Revelation, what it means to be marked. Simple outline. And then what it means to be marked inside the book of Revelation. So outside first, inside second. Now, I'm guessing that when we go through the first part of it, you're not going to be as familiar with it. So I want you to know that Revelation is steeped in the Old Testament and it uses so many instances and analogies and scriptures, not always directly, but indirectly, and you'll see what I mean, that there's a lot of things going on about being marked before you get to Revelation, so it's not something brand new for people. They do understand it based on the Old Testament and the culture in which they live. So let me show you what it means to be marked. Let's go back to the beginning, and we'll look at these six examples one at a time just briefly. All right? We have time. Genesis chapter 4. You know Cain kills Abel, and he is going to be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, Genesis 4.14. And he thinks this, whoever finds me is going to kill me. All right? So verse 15, the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And here's how the Lord keeps that from happening. Underline it. And the Lord put a mark on Cain. He put a mark on him. Now, This is not a biblical text, but the Palestinian Targum, which is basically a commentary on the book of Genesis, well, includes that part of it, 
It says this, and I quote, The Lord sealed on the face and forehead of Cain the mark of the great and honorable name of God so that he would not be killed. That's their explanation of it in the Palestinian Targum. So here's what it says. God put a mark on him, lest anyone who found him should attack him. So the first person, really one of the first people, is one of the earliest stories of the Bible, there is a mark. It doesn't say where it put him, but we might surmise that it's a mark on his head because that would be the easiest thing. If someone sees him, they'll know that he has a name on his head or some, some, something from God that is an area of protection. So write this down if you're taking notes because we're going to build a, a case or an argument. One of the things that marks do, not always, but one of them is it could be a mark of protection. All right? Mark of protection. Secondly, let's turn a little further back in the Old Testament to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a prophecy about the destruction of Israel because of their, surprise, worship issues. Cain killed Abel because of a worship issue, because he brought the sacrifice he wanted and not the one that God wanted him to bring. Worship issues are at the forefront of these Old Testament examples. Ezekiel chapter 9, and it reads, verse 1, Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city with each his destroying weapon in his hand. God's going to bring out his judgment and punish, you can read the chapter 4, on the idolatry and what he says is the abominations taking place in Jerusalem. And not just in Jerusalem, but right in the temple area. And he says, Behold, six men come from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with, with them was a man clothed with, in linen with a riding case at his waist. And they went in and stood before the bronze altar in the temple, worship issue. Now the glory of God of Israel had gone up in the, from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. In other words, this is an Ichabod story where God's glory is leaving. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem. And here's what I want you to do. Here's how I'm going to distinguish between my people and the wicked people I'm going to judge. Put a mark, notice where, on their foreheads. On the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan. In the Hebrew, it means to protest. These are people who are upset by the idolatry. They hate it. They're, they're fighting against it. He says, put a mark on them. Not, not on the wicked people. This is not a 666 mark. There's a mark on their foreheads and that, that they, they are groaning against the abominations. Verse 6. And, and the other ones who don't get this protective mark of God... It says, verse 6, kill old men outright, young men, maidens, little children, women, but touch no one on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So here's, here's the mark, not on the evil people, this is on the good people. The people who stand for God, worship God, stay true to God, everybody else is going to get judged through the wiping out of God's judgment as he brings it in. So we've learned so far that the mark can be on bad people. And the mark can be on good people. And when it's on good people, it can be a mark of protection. Number two, it can be a mark of identification. Because God says, this is the ones you know that you shouldn't kill, and this is the ones you can judge and kill. So it identifies who the remnant is, who the faithful ones who have been true to God and to his worship. Thirdly, Exodus chapter 28. Turn back to that. 
Exodus 28. And verse 36, and this is talking about the clothes of the high priest. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet. And here's what you hit. In other words, the high priest wore this turban. The turban had to be a certain way and it had to be certain colors. And it had a brim, so to speak, across the forehead. And on the brim across the forehead, they put this golden thin plate attached to the turban. And, then, and it was written on Aaron's forehead. And here's was the phrase. Holiness to the Lord is what it says, or holy to the Lord. In other words, set apart to God. The high priest is God's. <laughs> it is, he is God's. He's not a common person. He is a special person, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue, and it shall be on the front of the turban. Notice, it shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that are the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead. Why? Because when God saw him in his presence, he wouldn't strike him down. He would see that when he had been cleansed and pure, he could come in and represent the people and God could forgive them. So again, even a greater level of protection about the forehead plate of the high priest and the turban that he had on there. Spiritual protection is also part of what it means to be marked. Exodus chapter 12, you know this story, in verse 7, we're going to talk about the Passover, marked people, and people were marked not only by what was put on their hand and forehead, but on their house in this instance, you know the story, and God is going to come through and strike down the firstborn of Egypt, and you know through the plagues, all the ten plagues, Egypt was affected by them. But the Israelites weren't. It was dark all over Egypt, except it was light where the Israelites were. So God had the people marked out for destruction, and his people were marked out for good. And you can see it in verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel. The lintel is, I would say, the forehead of the doorframe, the top part of it. And it says... And in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh at night, roast in the fire, don't eat it. And it gives the instructions for the rest of it. And down in verse 12, at the end it says, For I will pass in the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And you have to put the mark. What is the mark? It is the lamb's blood on the top of the door and down the side of the doorpost. That's what you have to have. And if you go down to the end of the chapter, it says, and they come and they do all this stuff, and they end up worshiping, and it says... Um, that they stood by and they worshipped, and it says because that God struck the Egyptians but spared them. That's what the text says. So again, the mark was blood, and you're going to see that in the book of Revelation that people follow him with the mu- in the blood of the lamb, and their, their robes are sprinkled with it or washed in it, I should say. So the houses are marked, people are marked, identification physical protection, spiritual protection at times, and then even a couple other ones uh, more common in Jesus' day. Um, Matthew 23, 5 mentions them. It's, it's a literal rendering of Deuteronomy 6, 8, and they're called phylacteries. I don't know if you know what a phylactery is, but it's a leather box strapped on your forehead up at the top, 
and it comes down, and then you were on your, your, on your arm, you wore all these straps in a certain way, there's designations for all of that, won't go into night, and then there would be a box on your hand or your arm that you would wear, and, and that box contained little pieces of parchment that had scriptures of Torah in it, and so you would wear them here, and you would wear them here, Why? Because they are to mark you. You did that, Pharisees did it more than anybody, to mark their devotion to God and their commitment to God. They were faithful to him. and They wanted everybody to see it uh, publicly on their forehead and on their arm or their hand. Phylacteries marked marked off people as worshiping God in what I think and what I do. And then probably the most common one, at least in the time that the book of Revelation was written, were slaves. Two-thirds of the Roman Empire were slaves. And most of the time, or a lot of times, it was common for slaves to be marked for ownership. And the mark would be on the forehead most of the times. And so when you were marked on the forehead, that would mean that this slave was owned by this master. And it was a sign of ownership. It was a sign that this is the one who's under authority to this master. And so you put all that together, you begin to get a little bit of a more composite picture of what being marked would stand for. It's a mark of protection, physically and sometimes spiritually. It is a mark of identification, and it is a mark of ownership and authority. Now, let's put all that together in the last few minutes and look at the the verses in Revelation. Let me give you a thing that you might not realize if you don't read the whole book, is that everyone in Revelation is marked. Everyone. That seems to be the reading. And the reading is that people are being compelled, if they don't have the mark of the beast, to take it. And it says he's compelling them from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. So everyone across the globe is being compelled to take the mark. And the only people who don't take the mark are the other group because they're already marked. And they're marked with the mark of the Lamb. Or as he says it in numerous passages, they are sealed. And so you get the idea in the book of Revelation that during the seven-year tribulation after the rapture, is that there's only two kinds of people. People who have made the decision in the crisis moment to be faithful to God are people who have decided to try to do the other way and be faithful to the beast because they think it's advantageous for them. And so you go through the scriptures, and I'm just going to read a few more before we close. Let's go back and finish up tonight in Revelation 14. In verses 9 through 11, and another angel, a third, followed them, saying, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, that indicates what? What you're identifying with the beast, that you have become his slave, or you now worship him, and that's almost worship is mentioned almost every single time. You've chosen to worship him over God, and now he owns you, he has authority over you, and when that happens, people ask me all the time, if you receive the mark of the beast, could you possibly be saved? And the answer is no. Not just because you've taken sides and possibly could switch back. You you don't understand that you've taken a system. This is how you think, this is what you believe, this is how you live, okay? The Bible says that when you take that, it's not just a decision in the moment, this is a decision really of what you have become. And if you do, verse 10 says, this is what you get when you get the mark of the beast. You're going to drink of the wine of God's wrath, poured out full strength in the cup of his anger, and he'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image 
And whoever receives the mark of his name. So you either have God's name on your forehead as your owner, or you have the beast who represents the dragon, Satan. You have his name. Because naming and the mark always go together. It's a matter of authority. It's a matter of ownership. Chapter 16, real quickly in verses 1 and 2, read. Then I heard a voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go, pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. And I take that to mean, and they didn't come on those who had the mark of the lamb. So you see, here's what happens. There are spiritual protections. I'm not going to be tormented in the lake of fire forever and ever. That's a spiritual protection being marked by the Lamb. And there's also a level, and not completely, but at times a level of physical protection. Now, ultimately, we see these people are not completely protected because many of them are martyred and they get killed for their faith, right? But there is a level at times of that going on in the book of Revelation. It gets more serious, more serious. Chapter 19 and verse 20. Verse 17 says that I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds of the, that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gather to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So this is the big battle between Antichrist and his armies and the Lord and his armies. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in his presence had done the signs by which he... Now listen, why do people get the mark? Why would you choose it? Right? Why would you choose the mark of the beast? Deception. They, be- they believed lies. We're not told directly what the lie is, but I'm sure there are many of them. But it has the definite article, and there must be a lie that is the lie... That the Antichrist is really God's Christ. He's really the rightful rule. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but deception is what it is. They don't know the truth. And it says, they received the mark of the beast who worshipped his image, and these two were thrown into the lake of fire, which burns with sulfur, and they don't rest, it says. But the rest of them were slain with the sword of his mouth. You can see less, now at the end of it, everyone who sees the mark of the beast is going to be thrown in the lake of fire with them. But that is where you go. That's where it's headed when you choose that mark. Last verse on it in this text. And chapter 20 in verse 4 reads, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. Why were they beheaded? See, there wasn't ultimate physical protection for those who received the mark of the Lamb. They were beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received its mark in their foreheads and their, ha- and their hands. See, so you got two choices. I mean, it's pretty clear. And they are going completely opposite directions. And that is why when we are not in the tribulation period and the rapture hasn't come yet, may it be today, that it behooves us, does it not, to consider the all-important question that answers every other question? Who do you really worship? And can I tell you, it is times like this in which we live that God forces us to come clean 
about what the real answer to that question is. Not what we say at church, but what we do in real life when the tension comes and the crisis moments. What are the choices and responses and what do they reflect about the real person that we worship in our lives? And that's why the Bible says that these ones, chapter 14, follow the lamb wherever he goes. The mark is an indication that they are, and this is two different places. When I'm talking, one means you are in the book of life, and one means you're not. It's a, it's a, it's the mark is a metaphor, as it were, and for some, their little reality of the genuineness of their salvation, because which mark you bear really tells the truest story about your relationship with God. Now, the bad part was if you get the mark of the beast, eternal torment. That's about as bad as you can imagine. But can I end on a good note? The last scripture I'd like to read tonight is Revelation 22 and verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will what? Worship him. See, it's all about that issue. That's the bottom line. They will see his face. Why? Why will they be there and the vast majority of humanity not be there? And his name will be on their foreheads. That's why. Because that is a picture that they really knew him, that they were really dedicated and loyal to him. Their allegiance was unquestioned. Even at the worst times in their life, they were committed to Jesus above everyone and everything else. And that is our prayer. Isn't it? That's what we want to be in our crisis time. I mean, we're not in the tribulation, but this is a tribulation. And can I tell you, here's a time of testing for all of us. Will we remain faithful and committed? Will we keep worshiping Jesus, making him supreme in the affections of our hearts? We have choices to make, and those choices are going somewhere. You don't just decide to worship the lamb and quit doing that and worship the beast one day. No, It happens one decision at a time, day by day by day. And can I tell you, this is a great time when you have some maybe extra time, perhaps at home with your family and your children, to talk about the worship issue. What is real in your home? What is real in your kid's life? What's real in your life? And how does your life demonstrate it? Can I say this? Because everything, everything depends on it. Let's close in prayer. Father, what an important present day application. There's coming a day where the crisis and the tension will be far more than we could ever imagine. When the rapture comes and the tribulation period begins, terrible times, terrible times. But you've given us just maybe in our day a little glimpse of how bad it could be. And Father, this is the time for us to evaluate our hearts and our lives and answer the question, Evaluate our hearts and lives. Who do we really worship? That is the question. Everything depends on it, even our eternal destiny. Father, may we see the importance of that now. And may we take appropriate steps to answer it in such a way that we know that we will see your face someday. And we'll bless you and praise you and thank you for that. In Jesus' wonderful, wonderful name that we pray is on our hands and our forehead. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Have a great night.